You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not bought and redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Holy Father, we know that salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is free, it is unmerited. But we confess before your son this morning, it was not cheap. Your word says that you are in Christ, reconciling the world to yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your own body upon the cross, you bore all of our sin with all of its judgment, that once for all time you made a payment that whoever will call on your name will be saved. Spirit of God, thank you for the help you gave to the Lord Jesus as he went to the cross. And thank you for the help that you give us as we open the word that you inspired. So we ask that you take its truth and help us to see it, that we would be more than those who just hear it, but those who are willing to obey it. I pray in this service that you would Fill me and empower me for all who will listen to this message. And I pray, our Father, for our meeting tonight, that you would bring people who need a church home, and that you would bring others that need a Savior. So we know that without you, we can't do anything, but with you, all things are possible. And so may your will be accomplished, and we ask it for the glory of Jesus, and in his name, amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 25. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. When we are finished, we'll go back to a book of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And of course, since a third of the scripture is prophetic in nature, we will deal even further with prophetic issues. But we are giving special focus in these days for the simple reason that we are living in the last of the last days, what the Bible calls latter times. And while many are alert to what is happening, sadly, the average congregation is not taught prophecy. They know little of it, and so God's people are asleep. So we began this series looking at the rebirth of Israel and the rapture of the church. The rapture is a signless event. The second coming is a prophetically driven event. They're part of the second coming program, but they are two distinct events. This chart might help you to visualize the difference. The rapture, the term comes from the Latin translation of the Bible to be caught up in Latin. It's the word that gives us our English word rapture. People say it's not in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Latin Bible, but there's a lot of terms that we use even from Latin that aren't in the Bible, like Trinity, like what's written on the front of this pulpit and the five solas behind me there on the window. In the rapture, Christ comes for his church. We will meet him in the air. He will take us to heaven. I go and prepare a place that where I am, you can be as well. And of course, nothing is ever needed to happen for the rapture to happen. Versus the second coming, Christ comes back with his church. We're with him. He comes to the earth. His feet literally are planted on the Mount of Olives. The scripture teaches us it's prophetically driven. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming to happen. Now, the rapture is imminent. God could have 
taken their church away at 300, 500, 900 BC, 1500, I mean, excuse me, uh, AD or 1500 AD, but he didn't. Now, had he done that, say at 1000 AD, then he would have to begin that process of gathering the Jews and bringing them into the land. And, but he's waited nearly 2,000 years to set the stage for Christ's return from heaven. And the scripture is clear that at the end of the age, God will gather the Jewish people. And so today in Israel, there are 7 million Jews living there from over 100 nations of the world. And that's important because for the final prophetic schedule to happen, the Jewish people need to be in the land. We studied the battle of Gog and Magog, a very important battle. I suggested to you that it takes place after the rapture, before the signing of the peace covenant that the Antichrist will make with Israel that will begin officially that seven year period. Why is it significant? Because there are five nations that will go against Israel initially. And the three leading nations have already joined themselves together, Russian, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Here's a photo taken just six months ago. These three nations, a little over a decade ago, were arch enemies. Now they join arms with one particular goal that's common, their hatred for the people of Israel. And so we are witnessing, we are alive to watch God setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. The Bible says that after the rapture, the day of the Lord will begin. If you will bring up the next slide, again, here's the big picture. We're in the church age right now. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Christ spoke of it where he said, I will build my church. It didn't exist. It's a unique entity that began on the day of Pentecost. After the church is built, the rapture will take place. There's a space of time, not shown here, but small space of time, and then the seven-year tribulation period begins. While that's unfolding on the earth, the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of the just happens in heaven. We studied that, along with the wedding that will take place between Christ and the church. People might debate as to the timing of the supper, but no one debates that the wedding of the lamb to his church happens in heaven. While that is happening in heaven, this seven-year period known as the great tribulation period is unfolding. It's a dark time. And so we saw that this phrase, the day of the Lord, we did a whole message just on that. This, by the way, we've done 20 plus messages already in this series, the day of the Lord mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts at sundown and ends with sundown. Even so, uh, I believe right now we're in the shadows of the day of the Lord. It's a biblical principle found in many places that coming events often cast their shadow ahead of time. And uh, when the church is removed, it gets darker and darker and darker and darker through the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. Then Jesus comes to the earth, and it's his brightest day. He rules and reigns for a thousand years. But it gets dark at the end of the millennium again. It's all part of the day of the Lord. Why? Because people who enter the millennium will study this, and their natural bodies will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and some of them will not believe. And After the devil is released, he will tempt some of them to go against God's Christ. Then that will be put down, we'll enter into the eternal, statement in the final, uh, eternal state in the final judgment of all the lost.
But for some of the events that take place in the near future, what we call the seven-year tribulation period, things like the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist goes in and defiles a rebuilt temple, again, Israel has to be back in the land. They have to have a desire and a plan to want to rebuild the temple. All those things are happening. You have to have, for the events of the seven-year period, to take place some kind of global reset, where there's a joining at the hip, the nations of the world, economically, governmentally, religiously. And so we've been studying that. Here's a photo of the World Economic Forum. This was taken just eight months ago. 2,500 world leaders from across the planet met together. They called it, quote, in May of 2022, history at a turning point. Government pol- governmental policies and bis- business strategies. And of course, if you've been following the news, they just met again in the last 10 days. What was the theme this time? The theme this time was partnership for global LGBTQA equalities. So people say, well, we have a problem with moral perversion in the United States, it's global now. It's across the planet. And of course, that's one of the marks of the final time period in human history. The coming of the Son of Man will be like Noah's day, days of moral impropriety, and like the coming of the, coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. And then as pictured here, this is the Congress of world and traditional religions, not only is there a bleeding together of governments, but there's a bleeding together of religions. And pictured in this first slide is the head of the United Nations asking the governments of the world to join together with the religious entities of the world. Here's another photo. Of course, the Pope attended this meeting and gave much leadership to it. And they signed a document This just met in Kakistan in November, just a few months back. Signed a document with 35 major world religions, and they all agreed that they would not say that their religion is better than another religion. May I inform the Pope of Rome that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he signed that same document. I read it through. It's fascinating. And the name of Jesus doesn't appear once. That's a denial of Jesus before men. And so events are happening, and sadly, many of God's people are blind to what is happening. When Paul addressed the church at Thessalonica, he reminded us that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. That is in reference to the lost. But in reference to the saved, he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. And he could say that of the church at Thessalonica. And it should be true of all churches that we understand God's prophetic schedule enough that while no one knows the day or the hour, you can know the season. But sadly, we live in a day of replacement theology. Replacement theology has put the church asleep. They say there's no significance for Israel. Israel is no more significant, they would argue, than Uganda. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so the Lord Jesus is coming back. 
The scripture reminds us, inasmuch as it is appointed for a man to die once, for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. For those of us who have been saved, who are eagerly awaiting, he's coming back for salvation. To those who have never met him, he's coming back not as savior, but as judge. It's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Now, that's the general principle that God gives us in his word. Many times God will lay down a principle, and then he'll give exceptions to the principle. For instance, two remarkable exceptions that most of us know would be Enoch and Elijah, where they were swept right off the earth and up into heaven. And so, in one sense, they didn't die once, at least not in the traditional sense. And then, of course, there are several people, eight to be specific, who died, but then were raised, not from the dead like Jesus. They weren't resurrected to life. He was the first, but they were raised back to life only to die again. And so, in that sense, they died twice. Not to mention, the Bible says, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so those who are alive at the rapture will be swept away. So we won't even die once in the traditional way. But the principle remains the same. It's an important principle. Men will die, and then ultimately they will meet God in judgment. And when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back for the lost in reference to salvation. He's coming back in reference to judgment. He is a holy, omniscient, all-searchable, searching, powerful God, and no one will be able to escape his sight. And of course, when he comes back to judge, the scripture teaches that that judgment will happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said here in John 5 and verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Or Peter preached in Acts 10 there in Caesarea, and he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one, he's talking about Jesus, this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Likewise, Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So when he comes, if you're lost, he's not coming as your savior. He's coming as your judge. Those who've ignored him, those who have cursed him, those who have disbelieved him, those who have denied him, will meet him in all of his righteousness, in all of his holiness. Now, sadly, most unbelievers, and sadly, many believers as well, think that out there in the front, there's just one big general judgment. They may have differences as to what they think will happen, but they think there's one big general judgment. The unbeliever thinks that that is the point that will determine whether or not God will let them in. You know, the big scale in the sky kind of mentality. Whereas the believer recognizes, no, it's just a time of separation. It's already settled. The truth is, is there's not one big general judgment. Actually, there are seven coming judgments that are unfolding in Scripture. And I say coming judgments because there are some judgments that have already happened in the past, some that are going on in the present, 
And then I say seven judgments for people because there are other judgments as it relates to Satan and his demons, his fallen angels, and even a judgment for holy angels that the Apostle Paul reminds us that we as believers will participate in. And so here's a chart that maybe will help you to sort these things out. Again, the next event on God's schedule is the rapture. The church will be caught up in the air. And there is what's called the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. It's the believer's judgment. Again, it's not to see if you'll go to heaven. That's settled ever before you die by what you do with Jesus. But it is a judgment where God evaluates our service and he rewards us accordingly. Also at the second coming, Daniel 12 and verse 2, Old Testament saints are raised up. And so God's people who knew and loved him in the Old Testament era, right now they're in heaven, but they haven't been resurrected. The first to be resurrected will be the church. At the second coming, Daniel 12, 2, Old Testament saints are resurrected. And again, God will reward them accordingly in terms of their service. In addition to that, when Jesus comes at his second coming, dead tribulation saints will be raised. They'll be raised with Old Testament believers. And so those martyred saints during the time of the great tribulation, they'll be brought up at the second coming and rewarded accordingly before entering into the kingdom. Living Jews will be raised up and separated at the second coming. We'll study this more next time. God will take all the living Jews who survived the tribulation and separate unbelieving Jews from believing Jews. Not all Jews will believe. That's a common fallacy and misnomer in our day. But nonetheless, that judgment will happen at the second coming. Living Gentiles, we'll study that next time as well. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. They will be raised up at that time or, or judged at that time. So again, they'll be separated like the living Jews. Those living Jews who are believers will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. We'll study this when we come to the millennium. Living Gentiles who are saved, they'll enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. That's still in the future, that judgment of separation. At the second coming, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be judged. And of course, they have a reverse rapture because they're very much alive at the second coming. And just like we'll be translated in the twinkling of an eye and prepared for heaven, they will be translated and prepared with a new body for hell that will never be consumed. It's a reverse rapture of sorts. They will be the very first two occupants of the coming lake of fire. Today, men die and they go to Hades. There's coming a day when Hades and death and the whole shebang will be cast into the lake of fire. And then at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, there's the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. After this current heaven and earth are destroyed after Christ has ruled on it for a thousand years, the final judgment of all time will take place. Why does he wait till the very end of time for this final judgment? We will see why when we come to that. So each of these judgments, they differ in time, in purpose, in circumstance. And I say seven judgments on humans because the final judgment on Satan and his demons are again separate just like holy angels. Now, we're in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. It has special application and will have incredible interest for those who will be alive during the time frame when this period unfolds. But remember, all scripture is given by the breath of God. It's all profitable and so God has something 
to say to his church saints today. Chapters 24 and 25 are kind of a sermon, so we often call it the Olivet Discourse, but it's given to four people, and it's given in light of some statements that Jesus has made and some questions that that precipitated in their hearts. If you remember initially in the prior chapter, in chapter 23, he had been speaking to the multitudes. He had been speaking to the religious leaders and to masses of people. And of course, Jesus rebukes and exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and he compares them to those who killed the prophets of God. And of course, he indicts the people who followed them as well. And so Jesus makes an incredible statement in Matthew 23, 36, notice, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And these things that he's referring to is the destruction of the temple and the worldwide scattering of the Jews that he will mention. And so he quotes Psalm 122.1 that speaks of the house of the Lord, and that house shall be left desolate, the scripture says. It's going to be destroyed. So that helps us to understand the discussion that begins here in chapter 24. I'm laying the foundation, the context, and if you don't see it, you'll miss what God wants to say. Look at verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, who are the disciples? You should have written in the margin by now, Mark 13:3, next to verse 1. There's four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And so he meets with them. This is Tuesday. He comes on the prophetic day that Daniel wrote about, and he presents himself to Israel as the promised Messiah on Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. This is Tuesday. Passover, he's crucified on Friday. And so the scripture tells us in Mark 13 and verse 3, he is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's facing the temple. So his back is not to the temple. If I'm on the top of the Mount of Olives, and there's a peak right there, I'm looking across the Kidron Valley. I'm looking at the temple, what today would be the Dome of the Rock that, of course, was not there at that point. And it was a breathtaking building. Gold, silver, bronze, exceptional masonry. To say it's going to be destroyed... That's like saying the Twin Towers are going to come down. What do you mean they're going to come down? They're the largest buildings in the world. How could they come down? And so they're curious. Verse 2, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? They just pointed it out. Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down, which prompts the questions in verse three. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, these four, came to him privately saying, tell us when, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You'll notice there's three questions, technically, grammatically, two questions, with the second question coming in two parts. Tell us, when will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? When will the Jewish people turn to you. Hey, listen, I would say to my amillennialist friend that says the church has replaced Israel, they have missed the plain teaching of Scripture. Their theology comes out of Catholicism, not out of Holy Scripture. Because Jesus, when he quotes Psalm 118, says he cannot, he will not come back until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
the Jewish people that he's speaking about, he says, I cannot come back until they turn to me in genuine faith. And so what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When will you come in glory and power as the prophets wrote of you? And when will you come to live and reign on the earth in this coming kingdom that we've studied through the whole Old Testament with you, Jesus, over these three years? And so in Matthew chapter 24, he takes us all the way through this seven-year tribulation period that leads up to the second coming. And at the end of it, notice verses 33 and 34. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? All the things that are described there in that 24th chapter. The seal, the trumpet, the bold judgments. Israel turning to faith, the abomination of desolation. Now, sadly, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and he confused a lot of people. He went to the same seminary I did, and he never was taught what he presented. And so he posited, when Israel becomes a nation, a generation will not pass away. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. That abuses the context, but it made him a multimillionaire. Very sad, I hope he got his, gets his life right. He's at the end of life. Four marriages, a serial adulterer, but a rich man off the backs of ignorant Christians. When you see, if you are alive, when you see these seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, look up, he's coming you will see his literal physical return. And so he ends this pericope in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now that's the context of what we're going to study this morning. Jesus tells us that most people will be like the folks in Noah's day, totally unprepared when he comes back. And he wants his people to be in a state of readiness. And so he's going to unfold for us two parables so that we are ready to meet our judge. Chapter 25, verse 1. I know some of you don't have Bibles. I've learned that about 50% of the people who come to our church don't even own a Bible. And so if you don't own one, Come to meet the pastor tonight, and we will give you one. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil with them, but the prudent ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Now while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, they're finally was a shout, behold the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish virgins said to the prudent ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. However, the prudent ones answered, no, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the groom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Yet later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert because you do not know 
the day or the hour. So let's start with the first parable, the parable of the 10 virgins. So he begins chapter five with a parable, and a parable is nothing more than an earthly illustration or story to teach a heavenly spiritual message. And he uses a scene from the Jewish wedding ceremony. Notice verse one, then the kingdom of heaven. Let me stop there for just a second because over the years on a number of occasions, people have called into the Bible line and they've asked an important question. They said, is the kingdom of heaven different from the kingdom of God? And the answer quite plainly, is no, not at all, because they're used interchangeably. I could give you many examples. Most of you know the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, and uh, Jesus there uses the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God interchangeably. On that day, he said to his followers, truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in the very next verse, Jesus says, and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, When Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to little children, he says in Matthew, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, he says the same thing, except he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. So we're talking about interchangeable phrases, but more importantly, we need to understand the three primary usages of this term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in scripture. In a broad sense, the kingdom of God speaks of God's sovereign rule over all the universe, where he is the sovereign monarch that nothing is escaping his notice, There's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is not up in heaven sweating this morning, wondering what's going to happen. He is in total control. So in Psalm 103, verse 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Or King David will say in Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Bible is clear in the New Testament in texts like Romans chapter 13, that every authority that exists is established by God. So in one sense, in a very broad sense, the kingdom of God incorporates everything. Now I pause there to say that some of my amillennial replacement theology friends, that's all they see concerning the kingdom of God or primarily what they see. So they don't see some coming kingdom, some literal kingdom but they would recognize with us that there's also a spiritual dimension to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of, your, of this world, and that it was necessary to repent and to believe, to enter the kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, he said to those followers, the kingdom of God is within you. He said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. You cannot see, much less enter the kingdom of God unless you have a spiritual birth from above. That is the spiritual dimension to God's kingdom because no unbelievers will enter it. But there's also a literal physical dimension to God's kingdom, not just in heaven, not just within you, but literally on the earth. And so on what we often call the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in prayer. We pray that prayer. Someone says you shouldn't pray it. Well, on one account, it says pray, pray like this. On another account, it says use these words so you can go either way with it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. What's he speaking about? That literal earthly kingdom that someday will be upon the earth. Revelation 11 and verse 15 speaks of that day. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, 15 is doing a fast forward all the way to the book, the end of the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 20. It says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there is coming a day when the Lord will literally rule upon the earth. The concept of the kingdom, there's hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that speak of a promised kingdom to the nation of Israel. And God is a promise-keeping God. He will keep every promise he's ever made. And yet the length of it, we learn in the New Testament, is a thousand years. Not the concept, simply the length of it. So spiritually speaking, he is ruling only in the hearts of those who are born again. And unless you are born again, you will never enter into the coming kingdom because no unbeliever will enter into it. Now, that's the theology behind verse 1. Let's dig into verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins, that is, 10 young unmarried women who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Incidentally, if you're not familiar with Jewish customs as to how marriage took place in that day, in very much, at least in Orthodox circles to this day, then this won't make a lot of sense to you. Unlike in the Western world, a Jewish wedding was very different from what we perform today. First, there was the betrothal, where a groom would go to the prospective bride's father and they would agree upon a purchase price. Why was that essential? Because he had to be able to demonstrate that he could leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and provide for that young woman. That's why no pastor in this church will marry anyone unless that young man can show all by himself without any help from her that he can provide for her that he can make a home for her. And so they agreed upon the purchase price. They would drink from a cup. The arrangement was sealed. And from that moment on, they were called husband and wife. And unlike engagements in our culture, they can easily be broken. To break a betrothal, it had to happen either by death or by a formal divorce. Now, the betrothal usually lasted for 12 months, and the man would go and prepare a place for his bride. But you're called at that moment husband and wife. Four illustrations in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, where Joseph, he's only betrothed to Mary, had had no physical relationship. He's betrothed to her, but he's called her husband. Why? Because they're considered husband and wife. And of course, that's really what the exception clause found only in the Jewish gospel, Matthew's gospel, refers to. That was the virtual sole position for 1,600 years. That if during the betrothal period, someone had been unfaithful, and Joseph assumed Mary was unfaithful, he loved her, didn't want to disgrace her, so he wanted to put her away secretly. But he was simply trying to obey the law, being a righteous man. That's what the exception referred to. It has nothing to do with adultery after marriage. And so they would go, they would prepare a place. The bride didn't know the exact hour, but the time was approaching and so she would be ready. And that's really what we see happening here. And the groom would come, the groom's best man would come and he would blow the trumpet and say, behold, the bridegroom cometh. 
And then they would have a lighted procession all the way back to uh, his home, and it would be sealed and done. And by the way, this parallels Christ's relationship with the church. He agreed on a purchase price. With the Father, a body you have prepared for me, Hebrews 10. He sealed the deal at the Last Supper as they drank from a cup. I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. And his coming will be with the shout of the archangel. And he'll gather his church, and we will be with him forever. Now, by the way, this is one of the reasons why all the excuses that we make for a divorce today typically do not wash. Look, I'm not saying there's not a time when a woman is being abused and hurt and all those things when she can't separate. Paul teaches that. Now, that's a whole other subject, and remarriage is another subject altogether. But many times people hit a rift and they say, I'm tired, and, and they just go to the next person like it's a dating relationship. Well, this one's over. Let's start a new one. And I will say that over half the people of Community Bible Church are at least on second marriages. Why? Because that's the culture. And you reach people for Jesus, and divorce becomes a part of that culture. But I want to affirm there is forgiveness with the Lord. God is a forgiving God, and he can give a family a fresh start. But we can't make excuses and rationalize what is so often rationalized because then we do a great disservice to the next generation. You say, well, why should I be committed to this marriage when it's gone sour? For the same reason God sticks with you when you go sour. He doesn't divorce us every time we blow it. He sticks with us like glue, and he will come back someday and receive us. So just know that this parable is a familiar picture to the Jews who are reading this in the first century. Let's first consider the five foolish virgins who were unprepared. The five foolish virgins who were unprepared. Again, in verse one, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil with them, but the prudent ones took oil in, the fl- in flasks with their lamps. Now, it was customary to carry a little extra supply of oil because you didn't know during this night arrangement, is it going to go three hours or four hours or five hours before the bridegroom comes? So all 10 take their lamps, but five take an extra supply of oil. By the way, in two English translations, they mention the prudent or the wise first, and then the foolish second. But in every Greek manuscript that every English Bible is written on, actually, it is the foolish that come first and the wise that come second. And I say I think that's important, though it may not read as smooth, but I think it's important because he is emphasizing and underscoring the foolishness of these women. Verse 5, now while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. Kind of like a few of you here this morning. You're already nodding off. I see you. They, They knew the time was approaching. And so they trimmed down their lamps. They want to conserve the oil. They become drowsy. They began to sleep. But at midnight, there finally was a shout, behold, the groom come out to meet him. So now midnight, the groom shows up, and of course, some of these are not ready. Suddenly, 10 virgins, behold, 
The bridegroom comes, verse 7, then all those virgins got up who were ready and trimmed their lamps. So in one sense, all 10 are invited. And of course, God invites all people into a saving relationship with himself. He desires all men to be saved. He wishes that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. All 10 want to identify with the bridegroom, but as we'll see in a moment, he's not going to identify with all 10. So you have these foolish virgins who are unprepared. Be there on your outline. There's the five wise virgins who are prepared. The five wise who are prepared. Now, to capture the flow of thought, let's begin again in verse 7. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps, those who were prepared. But the foolish virgins said to the prudent ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. So the flames are sputtering and Look, look like they're about ready to go out, and they, they need some oil. But notice their response, the response of the wise. However, the prudent or the wise ones answered, no, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. Which, by the way, reminds me that no one can prepare for Christ's return for you. You have to prepare for yourself. Children, just because your parents know the Lord doesn't mean that you know the Lord. You have to make a decision. God has children. God has no grandchildren. Some of you are married and and you have a believing spouse, but you're unbelieving. Or very often, as one man recently said to me, he told me that both his father and grandfather were preachers. So what? That's a wonderful heritage, but they can't be saved for you. In addition... Uh, let's look at the consequences of the virgin's preparation. The consequences of the virgin's preparation. Let's read now verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the groom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. So while the foolish women are off looking to buy additional oil, the bridegroom shows up. Those who are prepared are welcomed in, and the text says the door was shut. When they finally arrive back, look at their sad end here in verse 11. Yet later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. By the way, the the tense of the verb that's used here means they said it over and over and over again. Lord, Lord, open up for us. Lord, Lord, open up for us. Lord, Lord, open up for us. They have the language of relationship. They have the profession of a relationship, but not a true possession. So the bridegroom responds, verse 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the Greek tense that is used here says he says it once with absolute finality. It's too late. There's eternal consequences. Now it's interesting because in this parable, both the wise and the foolish went out to meet the bridegroom. All 10 apparently expected to be able to enter into this wedding feast. But what is clear is that when Jesus returns, whether it's at the rapture for the church or here at the end of this seven-year time frame known as the Great Tribulation at the Second Coming, some will be ready and some will not. And again, no one can prepare for you. And if the rapture happens and you've heard the gospel in clarity and in power, and God alone can measure that, you won't believe. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, you'll be a part of a deluding influence that you might believe what is false. Why? Because you took pleasure in wickedness and refused to believe the gospel. 
And here are these people, they're watching all these events unfold on the earth, but not all will be ready and the door will be forever shut. Now we speak of a second chance in relation to sanctification. Some of you feel like you've failed so deeply, God can never restore you, he can. He wants to give you a fresh start. But there's no gospel of the second chance. You cannot get a second opportunity to get saved once the door is shut. So Jesus says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so in applying the parable in verse 13, be on the alert then, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, there are many today who identify themselves as Christians, and some who say, I'm not a Christian, but I'll become a Christian at some point when I get around to it. And some profess they know him, but they don't really know him. And that's what's true of these women, these five foolish women. They use the language of profession. They repeat the title, Lord, Lord, twice, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha. Those are terms of intimacy when you use the person's names twice, like, I have a relationship with you. Well, you may think you do, but I never knew you. Now, all men know there is a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. A lot of Christians are wasting their breath trying to give proofs for the existence of God. The only proof Paul gives is in Romans 1 and in Romans 2, the creation of the conscience, which is self-evident. So all men know there's a God. But that's not the same as knowing God personally. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And so without a true possession of salvation, without knowing the Lord personally, a day will come when the door is shut forever. Now, notice, it's not by accident, at the end of this parable, Jesus says, do you see it? Be on the alert. Now, in some of your English translations, it just says, watch. And actually, the King James that renders it, watch, is correct, because it's one word in the Greek New Testament. But it's not just any kind of a watch. It's kind of a a watch where you are totally in tune and paying attention. And so wanting to key off the nuance of the Greek, most translations say be on the alert, not to mention this is a verse that has been grossly abused. It sent people up on mountaintops and rooftops and they quote this text. And Jesus is just saying, be ready, be on the alert, Don't neglect these critically important spiritual truths. Now, that's the first parable. You with me? All right, let's go to the second one, the parable of the eight talents, the parable of the eight talents. Remember, he is trying to ready people for his return from heaven. Now, he'll do in this second parable what people should be doing if they are ready. He's going to underscore that, yes, we watch, yes, we look with a sense of readiness, but what should we be doing during that time? And again, he is keying off of this principle called the kingdom of heaven. Notice how verse 14 starts, for it is just like, for what is just like? He's going back to what he has just described a few verses earlier in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven. For it, the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So we have this picture of a wealthy landowner. He's going away on a journey. 
and the master, of course, represents the Lord Jesus, and he's leaving three servants in charge with his property. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. I think most of you understand, but just know that when the Bible uses the term talent, it's not using it the way we use it normally in English. A talent today might refer to, say, some super athlete or someone who can sing well or write a bestseller. Never used ever that way in Scripture. We even have a show. What was it called? America's um, Greatest Talent or... Uh, oh, America's Got Talent. America's Got Talent, right? So, so we even use the term in that respect. We tend to think of this word talent as some exceptional human ability. Never used that way in Scripture. It's used to describe a weight. It's used to describe a weight. And normally that weight is expressed in monetary terms. It might be gold. It might be silver. It might be bronze. And the weight depends on the culture. Just like the term dollar in different countries of the world has different values, even so the term talent in Babylon was different from Rome, different from Egypt, and different from a Jewish talent. But a Jewish talent, in fact, that it is a weight is clear. When you come to the end of the book of Revelation, you come to the, um, the sixth bowl, it describes these uh, hailstones that are 100 pounds each. So again, it is a weight, and sometimes it's in gold, but most often it was used in silver. And so what was the value of a silver talent? One silver talent in Jesus' day was worth 20 years of income. It was a significant amount of money. And if you had one talent, Even that amount of money that most people on the earth at that time would never see at once in their entire life, you were considered to be very wealthy. So here's his master, in essence, handing over cash to manage, and they're giving different amounts, five talents to one, two to another, and one according to his ability, and he went on a journey. Now, let me just say parenthetically that many commentaries and some sermons that you might hear They tend to interpret this only in the practical respect and they miss the whole context of the eternal. I don't think it's wrong necessarily to speak of the practical, that if God's given you some resource that you use it wisely and well and if you can multiply, but that misses the whole point of the teaching. The teaching is in reference to things that are of eternal significance. When you come down to verse uh, 30, he'll say, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you know those idioms, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know that those are idioms that are descriptive of the place of eternal wrath called hell. Outer darkness, unquenchable fire where the fire doesn't even give off light. When Christ comes back as judge, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And he went on a journey. So this parable is about this wealthy man. He's going on a business trip, a vacation, we don't know, some venture, but he's going for an extended period of time. And the text says that each servant, or we might say each employee, was given note each according to his own ability. So don't conclude, by the way, because one is given five and another is given two and another is given one, that he is being unfair or unequitable. If you draw that conclusion, then you're reading more into the parable and you're ignoring the 
the, con- the, co- the context, and really what we even do in our own day. He is not giving preferential treatment. He is honoring people according to their ability. Now, I admit there are some people who get passed over for maybe an increase of promotion or rank or whatever it might be, and, and unfairly so. But some get passed over and they complain and they whine and they are big crybabies over it when they don't really need the job. If we go on a medical mission trip and we bring a surgeon with us, and you're one that has skill with, say, an IV bag, he's not going to give you the scalpel. He's going to let you do what you can do. And if you're on a mission trip and you have trouble putting a a bandage on a wound or a Band-Aid on a cut and it causes your stomach to turn, they're not going to give you the IV bag. (laughs) They're going to let you serve according to your ability. And so if someone does not have the proper skill set for a particular job, it's a good thing to pass over them under those circumstances. So in the context, he's not showing preference, he's showing deference, he's showing wisdom according to their ability. And so if you give five talents, a huge sum of money to someone who doesn't have the ability to handle five talents, then you're going to frustrate them, maybe even seemingly paralyze them. So if five talents were given, though, to a person with minimal ability, you might frustrate them. So the Lord does it accordingly. So don't read into the text more that is here. Now, a couple of things I want you to see. First, the faithful servants who are prepared. The faithful servants who are prepared. Just as in the parable of the ten virgins, the three slaves fall into two categories. Two groups. First, the faithful servants who are prepared. Look now, if you will, at verses 16 and 17. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Now, what is clear is that these first two servants went to work with what they have. Verse 16 says they traded with them. And verse 17 says in the same manner, meaning the person with the other two talents, he did the same thing. He traded with them. Now, we're not told how they traded with these talents. Perhaps they loaned the money on interest. Perhaps they invested the money somehow. They bought things. They sold them for a profit. The point is, is they used what they had and they gained more with what they used. And there are many really good things that we can say about these first two faithful slaves. The first is their promptness. Notice I have it circled in my Bible immediately. They don't sit on their hands, oh, someday I'll get around to serving the church. You know, I I meet people sometimes, they've been coming here for three years and they've never joined. Like, do we have cooties? I mean, uh, do we have leprosy? Or, you know, what's the problem, man? If not here, join somewhere else, but don't sit on your hands. Invest in the kingdom. They immediately go to work. And second, beyond their promptness, there's perseverance. They don't quit. They hang in there. Because verse 19 tells us that the master is away for how long? For a long time. For a long time. And that's important. B, there on your outline, let's consider the faithless servant who is unprepared the faithless servant who is unprepared. Let's start reading now in verse 18. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Again, 
This may sound um, like no big deal, but it is a big deal. And it may sound like a small amount, but it is an incredible amount of money. So I'm giving a million dollars, a one talent man, and you're giving five million dollars. A million dollars is still a lot of money. One talent is an incredible amount of money. And this third servant does nothing with his master's money. He takes the one talent. He doesn't try to multiply it. He doesn't try to invest it. He doesn't try to work with it. He hides it. He puts it in the ground. He buries it. He dug a hole in the ground, and he did nothing constructive with it. And as we'll see just in a moment here, it was the worst thing this guy could have done. Which brings us to the third point, and it, and it concerns the consequences of the slave's preparation. The consequences of the slave's preparation. Look now, if you will, at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So we learn the master returns from his journey, note, after a long time. And of course, the long delay really tests the faithfulness of these men, does it not? Oh, he's not coming back anytime soon. We got plenty of time. No, we don't have plenty of time. Today is the day to serve. We're all one heartbeat away from eternity. Now, again, notice the context. If you go back into chapter 24, there's no slides for it, but I'm just looking here on the page and Go back to verse 45. This is another parable. Who then is a faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household slaves to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master so finds doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. There it is again. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and he eats and drinks with those habitually drunk. Then the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect. And at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in two and assign him in a place with the hypocrites in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, just because Jesus has been gone a long time, about 2,000 years, does not mean he's coming back. And again, this is the danger of replacement theology. God is setting the stage, and most Christians are just fast asleep. But here's the point, is the master returns after a long time, after a long delay. By the way, that's what the devil wants you to think, that it's a long delay. And so the doctrine of evolution, which some foolish Christians have bought into, theistic evolution, or they may believe that God literally created the world, but millions of years ago that this is an old earth, that this has been going on forever and ever and ever. Look, for almost 1,900 years, every Jew, every Christian, church fathers, reformers, they said this world was 6,000 years old. That when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of evil. But the devil wants you to think millions, possibly billions of years. Why? Because it's been going on for so long, it's going to keep going on for so long, and there's no real point of accountability. And he's won a victory in the hearts of many people because of that. Verse 20, the one who received the five talents came up and brought... Bought, brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See that I've earned five more talents. That's 100% return. That's good. He's pleased. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. So notice he calls this man a good and faithful slave. He tells him, well done. And he rewards him in two ways. First, he tells this faithful slave, because he's been faithful in a few things, he'll put him in charge of many things. And second, he says, enter into the joy of your master, which in the context is the kingdom of heaven that he is invited to enter. He was not saved by doing those things, but by the things he did, he proved he was saved. You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. And so this servant would share in his master's own personal joy, enter into my joy. That's a relationship with the living God. Now notice verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Now, both of the first two slaves doubled their master's investment by using what they had to the best of their ability. And again, it's important to note here that while this servant didn't have as much, but he still doubled it, they're both given the same accolation. They're called, notice, good and faithful. And so what I think is interesting is he doesn't necessarily um, uh, commend them simply for the fact of how much money they made, but for their character qualities, that they are good and faithful slaves. And of course, that is so different to the third that we'll look at. Notice too, he doesn't say, well done, good and brilliant slave, for perhaps these men never shown in some spectacular Einsteinian kind of abilities. He doesn't even say, well done, great and distinguished slave. Maybe no one ever knew their name beyond the little town or village they lived in. Well done, good and faithful slave. And again, I'm not against taking this parable and speaking about it in practical ways, but it misses the whole point of what Jesus is saying. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It it moves us. It works through us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And if you know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of this living on behalf of the Lord as being good stewards of the gospel message that you have been entrusted. Look at verse 24. The one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. By the way, on the day of judgment... God will not see how your church did. He'll not see how your family did. You will stand there all by yourself. I mean, if, he, if it were on that range, then you might say, well, they started with eight, they ended with 15, so I guess they're okay. Hmm? But we stand alone, each one, before the living God. And I was afraid, verse 25, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. He said it was fear that moved him to do nothing, that paralyzed him. This is what he reasons, and he blames others. That's what unbelievers do all the time. It's not their sin. It's somebody else's sin. 
Lost people don't live for the glory and honor of God. They live simply for themselves, and they will often take the path of least resistance. See, you have what is yours. I suppose he did more than maybe some people, but he didn't do what he could have done. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would receive my money back with interest. So clearly, his master's response to his servant's story, it rings as anything as but being true. I mean, if he really perceived his master to be this way, then he would have done the least that would have cost him nothing and put it in the bank, wouldn't even have to guard the hole to make sure no one found it. And when the master came back, he could have had his money with interest. But with the strongest of words, notice I have it circled, he calls him a wicked and lazy slave. And he's lazy because he doesn't serve his Lord. Where someone who loves the Lord, the scripture says they are zealous for good deeds. By the way, we don't typically think of laziness as a sin, but it is according to scripture. Oh, we say adultery and murder, and th- but laziness? The third servant, he completely rejects the instructions of his master. He pretends to obey, but he doesn't really obey. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. That's a wise decision because the one who has 10 talents He is likely to, again, multiply it. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but for the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Now, again, sadly, I've heard too many sermons where pastors and commentators deal just with the practical. In my judgment, they miss the whole focus of the eternal. And so we talk about, you know, multiplying your financial assets for Jesus. You know, give a tithe to the Lord, and you should, but multiply your assets for Jesus. And we miss the greater eternal emphasis of this text. Again, in verse 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, an idiom used to describe hell. And in the broader context, that's what he's speaking of, of this coming judgment. Look back in chapter 24 and verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, so the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, in the parable that follows, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And likewise, in this parable, there's eternal consequences to not knowing the Lord as your Savior. Throw the worthless slave into outer darkness. Let me ask you a question. What is it that is of the greatest value to you? You know, people come to meet the pastor, and sometimes folks who come are saved, and usually at least half, and and I'll say, look, the presentation I'm going to do, you're going to find helpful, because if you haven't led anyone to Jesus in the last two or three years, you can, and you ought to, and so let me maybe give you a way in which you can lead someone to Christ. 
And I'll often say, what's the greatest thing that ever happened to you in your whole life? And if they're saved, they'll say without stutter or stammer the day I was saved. I mean, what's more important than that? Well, if that's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you in your whole life, what's the greatest thing you could share? How somebody else could come to know Jesus. And so, really, the stewardship that the Scripture is speaking about concerns eternal things. Stewardship of the gospel. God has entrusted something to you. He has given you the gospel message, and he wants you to use it for the glory of God. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost. What did he commission us to do? To go into all the world and make disciples, converts, preach the gospel to every person under creation. This is the only explanation as to the guy with the one talent was judged and ultimately consigned to hell because he just took the precious talent that his master gave him and he buried it. Here, you can have it. I don't want it. In essence, Jesus is saying, if that's how you see me, someone who's unmerciful and harsh, and you reject what I have provided for you, salvation, then you can go to hell. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says, and we already use it. Now, how can we apply this text? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, God has not entrusted the same number of talents to each one of us. Some of you may be thinking that you're not a pastor or an evangelist or some professional when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now, you may not be a Billy Graham or a pastor like me, but God wants to use you where he has placed you in your sphere of influence to touch those who are lost. We're all to be about our Father's business and sharing the good news, even if you bring just one person into the kingdom. I went into the ministry in 1978, and I've been able to use the best hours of my week since that time to share the gospel, and God knows I've shared the gospel with thousands of people. And while I was out in ministry, my wife was in ministry raising our five children, teaching them about Jesus, giving me a platform of credibility from which to minister. And she has spent a large portion of her life building into women so that they can be successful in that process. And she may have not seen as many people come into the kingdom as me, but I have no doubt the Lord will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, and her reward will probably be far greater than mine. Wherever God has planted you, he wants you to bloom. He wants to get a good return off of your life. And it's not so much a matter of quantity as it is faithfulness. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Second, I am reminded from these two parables that some people are externally followers but not internally saved. Now, whether it's the five foolish bridesmaids who dress up like the five prudent bridesmaids, and still the door was forever shut. They played the part, but they lacked the heart. Whether it's like the slave with the one talent who claimed to be a servant, but who had no real heart for his master. There are people who profess, but who do not possess. 
They go to church, they sing the songs, they give their money, they trim their wicks, they play the part. But there's no heart. Coming to church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage will make you an automobile or sitting in a Starbucks will make you a barista. You have to meet Jesus. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And in every church, Jesus said, there are saved people, and then there are tares, people who think they're saved, but they've never had the second birth. Third and finally, a day is coming when the door of salvation will be shut forever. For one group not ready, they are out attending to other things, looking for oil, and then the bridegroom came, For another, he was doing nothing when he had been offered an opportunity, and then the master came, and time ran out for both of them. Look, one of two things will happen. You're either going to die first, or Jesus is going to come back first. So the message is, are you ready to meet God? And if you're not, you can't come on your terms. We're sinners worthy of judgment. We must come on his terms through the blood of the cross and the resurrection that declares him to be Lord. Have you ever done that? You can today. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, thank you for these timeless lessons that you've given us in Scripture. May we have hearts to hear. And more than just to hear, but to respond and to be changed by the truth that we've been exposed to today. We know, Lord Jesus, you are coming back. In the twinkling of an eye, it could happen today. We don't know when. But we pray that we would be alert, that we would not be sitting on our hands in apathy, but eagerly taking the gospel that you've entrusted with us in our sphere of influence and to use it for your honor and for your glory. Help someone today who's never met Jesus to call upon his name in faith. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.